Good morning, church. For nothing is impossible with our God. Amen. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? If you have your Bible, please open it to 1 John. We will be looking at verses 19 through 34. 1 John, verses 19 through 34. I found a quote online this week by an American editor, and the quote says, uh, Blessed is the season which engages the whole world in a conspiracy of love. Blessed is the season which engages the whole world in a conspiracy of love. Advent is that kind of season. It engages the whole world in a conspiracy of love. It engages the whole world in a conspiracy of hope, peace, and joy. You see, the Advent gives the world Jesus. That's an amen statement. It gives the world Jesus. Jesus who comes into the world as the one true light, a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. It won't ever overcome take it. Jesus is the conspiracy of love, hope, joy, and peace. The one who redeems, the one who resurrects, the one who restores, and the one who renews. Advent is a blessed season, not just for celebrating Jesus and his first coming, not just for waiting expectantly for his second coming, but Advent is also a season where the church gets to testify. We get to testify, to bear witness about her Lord and Savior to the world. Like every believer on the face of the earth has a testimony of Jesus that they can share with other people. Every believer has a testimony of the light, just like John the Baptist here in the text before us. He has a testimony about the light, and that testimony is given in verses 19 through 34 of John chapter 1. Here is God's word to his beloved people. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews, were, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him then, why are you baptizing if you needed a Christ, nor Elijah, nor a prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the very next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me.
because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he whom you should baptize with. This is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, as we come to uh, the preaching of the word, I do pray that you will move. That's my prayer every week. That's my prayer all the days of my life, that you will move. For you are our counselor. You are our sustainer. You are our deposit that guarantee of our inheritance, Lord. And we can't move, Holy Spirit, apart from you. So we pray to you as as a third person within the Godhead. Be our counselor. Be the one who reminds us of truth. Be the one who reminds us of our true identity in Christ. Be the one who who fights against our fleshly nature. Be the one who changes us. So Holy Spirit, come, move, change, encourage, convict. Whatever it is we need, you see it. And I pray that you would minister to it today for our benefit and for the glory of Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. There's more than one type of, of testimony uh, that people can have in life. There, there's a relig- there are religious testimonies um, based upon a person's religious experience, and, and some of us have those testimonies. You have philosophical testimonies that are based upon a person's personal experience or, or knowledge. And then you have lawful, te- te- uh, lawful testimonies that you often see in a court of law as, as evidence. So in verse, in verse 14b, it says, this is a testimony of John. But is it religious? Is it philosophical? Is it lawful? Is it based on religious experience? Is it based on personal knowledge? Is it based on evidence? Is it based on truth? John's testimony is based on hard prophetic evidence. Hard prophetic evidence, divine revelation, God's truth. John's testimony is a declaration about Jesus Christ, about the light of the world. And that's what verses 6 through 8 tells us, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He comes as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist is the witness. Not a witness, the witness. But is, but is he credible? Is he a credible witness? You see, in the court of law, a, a credible witness is a person whose testimony is trustworthy. A person whose credibility is beyond suspicion. And this person is competent to give evidence. So is John the Baptist a credible witness that we can trust? 
Is he a witness the Jewish people can believe? A witness that the religious leaders of the day can believe and receive? A witness that the Sanhedrin will receive, listen to, and follow? You see, we, as modern Christians, we, we can often take for granted the privilege of being able to look back into biblical history. Like, we know John's a credible witness because when we read it in God's word. But if you're in his historical context, if you're living during this time, you don't really know for sure. You just have to take him at his word. So if you put yourself in the shoes of, of, of these first century Jews, like, would you easily believe the testimony of John the Baptist? Would you easily believe the testimony of a man who wears camel skin for clothes with a belt around his waist. Would you? No, we wouldn't. Would you really believe a man who eats honey-glazed grasshoppers for food? No. We would not easily believe him. So we have to check our biblical privilege and don't let it deceive us. See, we will actually walk past John the same way we walk past street evangelists. And we'll tell our kids, pay that person no mind, honey. There's just some weird religious fanatics. So we can't look down on the people in John's day. We we can't think that we're better than them. We're all guilty of judging books by their cover. And in the process, we miss Jesus. We're all guilty of that. And in the process, we miss him. Have you missed him this week? Have you been judged this week? See, John is a credible witness despite his physical appearance, despite his choice of food. Now, I don't care for that type of food, but he does. Now, he might not look the part, but he is the part because he's called by Yahweh Elohim to be the forerunner of Jesus. He was born to be the witness, sent to bear witness about Jesus and about the light. And the testimony of the witness concerning Jesus is true. Amen, church. True. We know it, but the people during his day don't. They have no clue to John's identity. Because he's not a priest. He's not a religious leader. He's not part of the religious system. He's not part of Sanhedrin. In fact, this brother has been living in the wilderness for a long time. Living off the grid. And you know what we think about people that live off the grid. Okay? He's been living off the grid for years. And all of a sudden, he just appears out of nowhere. Preaching a message of repentance and of forgiveness of sins. And baptizing people in the Jordan River. Who is this grasshopper eating man? He's the witness. And eventually the... The testimony of the witness, it reaches the ears of the great Sanhedrin. If you know anything about ancient Jewish culture, you know the Sanhedrin is is the highest Jewish court. It's the supreme council in ancient Jerusalem. It's a religious and political assembly of 71 religious leaders. The high priest is part of this council, and two religious political groups are part of this uh, council as well. And this news about John comes to the high council. In the modern sense, the news about them come through their social media feeds. 
you know, like their Facebook page, their Instagram account. See, John is trending in the ancient world. He's trending. His presence rattles the religious establishments, piques their curiosity. A strange, unknown man is ministering among the Jewish people, and they don't know who he is. And he's not connected to the religious system of the day. So suspicion rises, and there's a concern. And it's only natural, right? Many of us feel the same way, right? If we're honest with ourselves, something has to happen, and it does. And so the Sanhedrin, they appoint a group of people to go see John, to question John about his who he is. And so a face-to-face encounter is unavoidable. A standoff is, is getting ready to take place. An official interrogation is going to happen. John is going to be pulled into the principal's office, okay? And he's going to be questioned about his identity and his ministry. He's going to receive an email from Cynthia saying, I want to meet with you. So he's going to be put on the spot. And Sanhedrin sends two groups of leaders to meet with John about his identity. A group of priests and a group of Levites. Look at verse 19. And this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Don't skip over that. Who are you? These two groups, they carry over from the Old Testament. They represent the, the, the priesthood of Israel. And if you know, again, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the priesthood was instituted by Yahweh Elohim within his covenant people for their benefit and for his glory. In Exodus 28, he, 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 tell, he, tells, he says, the Lord God made a tribe of Levi his priestly tribe. So that means all priests are Levites, but not every Levite is a priest. And there are two different classes of priests within the priesthood with similar functions and different functions. The priests themselves are allowed to serve within the tabernacle and within the temple. They guarded the interior of the temple. And the Levites who weren't priests, they had other duties. They assisted the priests. They were musicians. And, and they guarded the exterior of the tabernacle like gatekeepers. See, the priesthood served as judges and, and teachers of the law. They were mediators between Yahweh and his people. They were the spiritual leaders of his people. You see, the priesthood, they ministered to, cared for, and protected the tabernacle and temple. They restricted access to it like yellow caution tape. But in Christ, the tabernacle comes close to us. Same statement again. In Christ, the tabernacle dwells with us in bodily form. In Christ, the tabernacle ministers to us cares for us, protects us. In Christ, the caution tape around the tabernacle comes down. It comes down. There are no more restrictions. You know, every priest, before he entered the tabernacle, had to make himself clean, ceremonial clean. See, in Christ, unclean people get to go into the tabernacle in order to be made clean. Okay? He reverses it. And his blood does the cleaning. Not our goodness. So are you clean? Do you want to be clean? Then you got to come to faith in Jesus. Then you got to come into the light. 
Hebrews 10, 19 through 33 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his own flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Can you testify to that? Can you bear witness about that? Can you confess it? John does. John does. And remember these, the, the people that he's talking to, they're they trying to get a, 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 figure out who he is so they can tell the Sanhedrin. And so they travel to Bethany across the Jordan to meet with John. And so they show up unannounced. You know, like people showing up to your house unannounced. And when they get there, they don't say hello. They don't say, excuse me, sir. There's no introductions, no small talk, no debate about the economy, no debate about the Roman games, no discussion about the Roman government, just straight to the point. Right to the interrogation of the witness. Look at verse 19 again. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Tell us your identity, man. Reveal yourself. Who are your people? Tell us who you are. And when you look at the situation, you think, man, the nerve of these men. They're all up in his personal space interrupting his ministry. He could have been baptizing somebody for all we know. No respect, no common courtesy. Now, what is your mood at this point if someone steps to you that way? Would you be into your feelings? Frustrated, angry? Would you put them in that place? Would you run away? Would you ignore them? John doesn't run away. He doesn't refuse to engage them. He willingly participates in the interrogation without fear and without being intimidated by their position, their position and their authority and their role. Verse 20 says, he confesses and does not deny. He confesses and does not deny. He openly confesses, gives them a testimony of confession, an emphatic and clear confession, a declaration without qualification, and he avows without apology. The witness is ready to testify. He's ready to testify. Have you ever had a case of mistaken identity when someone incorrectly thinks you're someone else? Or have you incorrectly thought another person was someone else? It happened to me years ago. Now, I was much smaller then, way less. I was on vacation with the family, and we were having lunch together. And so I'm walking back to our table, and this guy stops me. He says, excuse me, are you Michael Irvin? <laughs> I said, I wish, but I'm not him. See, John is going to have the same experience with these Levites and priests. They come to him with some assumptions about his identity, but they're mistaken. It's a case of mistaken identity. They mistake John for other people, people they knew about, people they were uh, expecting to come, people they were waiting on for generations. 
And so they have three assumptions about his identity. And these three assumptions represents the assumptions of the Sanhedrin itself. They assume that John is the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy. Some end time expectation. That's what they assume. You see, John's open confession puts to death their assumptions about him. He gives them three confessions of denials. And one theologian says, even John's denials constitutes part of his witness to the true Christ. Even his denials. John's denials are a testimony about the light, a witness to Jesus. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am, I am not the Christ. They didn't even have to ask that question of him. He, off the bat, he goes, he, he, goes, he, he assumes that's what they're going to ask him. And he assumes that's who they think he is. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the promised Messiah. I'm not the light of the world. I'm not the Savior. Let's just go ahead and take that assumption off the table right now. Don't project on me any message claims. That's not who I am. John denies being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy concerning the the, the Messiah. He eliminates that case of mistaken identity. Next, so the interrogation moves on to the second case. What then, they ask, are you Elijah? Are you the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning him? Who is Elijah? Elijah was a prophet of the Lord God during Old Testament times. He lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. And and here's a supernatural fact about Elijah. He never experienced physical death. He never died. Like, really, Pastor? That that can't happen. It did. 2 Kings 2 tells us that chariots of fire and horses came for Elijah. And he went up into heaven by a whirlwind. That is supernatural. The prophecy concerning uh, the return of Elijah is in the book of Malachi. And that book prophesies about Elijah's return. And it says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they want to know, are you Elijah? Are you the fulfillment? John says, I'm not. I'm not. He doesn't claim to be the fulfillment of this prophecy either. He eliminates another case of mistaken identity. So they move on to the third case. Asking, are you the prophet? The prophet is a reference to a prophecy that was given through Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophecy says, the Lord God will rise up from among you, a prophet like me, from your brothers. It is he. You shall listen to. Are you Moses? John. Are you a prophet like Moses? John again answers no. He eliminates this case as well. All the assumptions about him have been rejected, have been denied. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. And if you are a Christian today, then what's the application of all this for you? All that rambling I've been doing, what does it mean for you? It means this. You can't profess Jesus himself at the same time. You can't bear witness about his finished work and your own work. 
and your own good deeds at the same time. You can't stand on his righteousness and your own righteousness at the same time. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You're either in or you're not. You see, the testimony of your life is one of God's redemptive handy work. That's an amen statement. Not your work, not your performance, not your productivity. It's his work in your life. So when you think about your lifestyle, who does it testify to? Jesus or you? Who does your life testify about? Jesus or you? John is able to deny these mistaken identities because he knows who he is. He knows his role, his purpose, his calling, and he knows his lane, and he stays in it. None of you are John the Baptist, and that's okay, but you're somebody. But you're somebody. If you're not a believer this morning, then guess what? God is calling you. His purpose, his call upon your life right now is for you to come to know him. That's his calling if you don't know him. That's his calling. And if you are a believer, if you do have faith in him, then you do have purpose, a calling, a calling, a role, a lane. Do you all know who you are? as Christians. Do you know? Now, I can't give you the particulars of your calling. I can't because I'm not psychic. But you can pray about the particulars. You can seek godly counsel about the particulars, and you can fast about the particulars. But I can give you general truths about who you are. The identity of every believer is found in Christ alone. And that's true across the board. I don't care what color you are, how much money you got, or what nation you live in. Your identity is in Christ. All of our identity is found in him. Period. In Christ, every Christian in the world are children of God. And he has no favorites. He loved all of us the same. Think he loved David more than he loves you? Hmm? Does he love Moses more than he loves you? Does he love your favorite famous preacher more than he loves you? No. He loves us all the same because his love is not based upon the things we do for him. So when a group of people come to you and they ask you, demanding you to tell them who you are, you say, I'm a child of God. That's who I am. You can shout it from the mountains. You can shout it in the valley low. I am a daughter of God. I am a son of God. I am a saint of God. I am a testimony of God's mercy. That's who I am. That's who I am. I'm a testimony of his faithfulness to me, a testimony of his long suffering, a testimony of his grace and and his forgiveness. When you live in your identity in Christ, that bears witness about him to other people. Did you know that? When you live in who you are, that can bear witness about him. When you embrace it, it bears witness about him. And when you deny false identities, that also bears witness about him as well. Living out your calling bears witness about him. So it means wherever God has called you to, the role that you have in your life right now, you can bear witness to him there. You don't have to be anybody else. 
Somebody needs to hear that. You don't have to be somebody else. He hasn't called you to be nobody else. You don't have to be jealous of any other woman, ladies. Or any other mother, ladies. Or any other wife, ladies. You can be you. You can glorify God being you. A lot of amen, right? Okay. Amen. Talk to me now. Talk to me. Talk back to me now. And same for men. You don't have to be another man to glorify God, to bear with You can be glorify him by being who he has made you to be. And that is enough. Young girls, you don't have to be the girls on TV. You can be you. Young boys, you don't have to be somebody else. You can be you, and that is enough. You can bear witness about him being who you are. Romans 12, verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. John thinks above himself with sober judgment. He's not thinking about himself more highly than he ought to. And that's another reason why he can deny these false assumptions about who he is. He can deny those things. Now, the priests and Levites, they're not happy because John has not answered their question. And I can relate to that because when I ask someone a straight question, I just want a straight answer. Okay, John hasn't given these men a straight answer yet. At all. So they're frustrated, irritated with him. And so they say, who are you? We need to give an answer to the people who sent us. What do you say about yourself? If you're denying all these things, then tell us who you are. What do you say about yourself? So he finally reveals his identity, his purpose, his role, his lane, his calling. Verse 23, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Here's the interesting thing here. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, just not the one that Sanhedrin has in mind. Just not the one he has in mind. Just not the one they're looking for. He is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of the promised messenger that Malachi 3 verses 1 and 3 talks about. The messenger that was going to be sent to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah, for the light, to, to make his path straight. So John is crying in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But no one hears him. They're not listening. So he answers their question, and yet they don't even acknowledge his answer. Think about that. They, 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 want, they want to know his identity. Then when he gives it to them, they, they don't even acknowledge it. They don't even engage his question. They don't have any follow-up questions at all. It's like they're not listening for understanding. It's like John's answer about his identity goes into one ear, out the other. As a parent, you know what that, that's like, dealing with your kids. It's like they really don't care about his real identity. And you can hear the crickets. The priests and the Levites are silent. 
silent. And their silence reveals something about them, just like our silence can reveal things about us. Indifference, fear, confusion, a I really don't care attitude, a lack of empathy. The silence of these men reveal they care more about their agenda than the actual truth. Okay? They care more about what they were sent to do than actually understanding the actual truth of who he really is. They come with a mission. They come with an agenda. See if this man is the Christ, the Elijah, or Elijah the prophet. If he's none of those things, then we don't care who he is. They don't care who he is. They just keep it moving. Move on to the next questions. Why then are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. And John answers them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And more silence. You can hear more crickets. They don't even ask any follow-up questions about the identity of this man who, who stands among them. John gets nothing from them. You know why he gets nothing from them? Their silence reveals their rejection of John. Their rejection, their rejection of his true identity, their rejection of his ministry, their rejection of his message. And the priests and the Sanhedrin and all the Levites, they, they miss Yahweh here. They miss him. He's in their face and they miss him completely. They don't even see it. The Lord God is moving outside of the Sanhedrin. He's moving outside of their religious system and structure and establishment. He's working outside of the box they put him in. He's working outside their finite expectations. And please understand, Yahweh Elohim isn't a God in the box. You can't just systematize him in theology books and in a sermon. He works with us and apart from us. And he doesn't need permission to supernaturally intervene in his creation and in your life. Because that's what's happening with John the Baptist. That is still is what's happening in your life. You see, the 400 years of silence is now over with the appearing of John. The God ends the silence on his own terms. He ends it his way according to his plan and his mission and his agenda. And the breaking of the silence leads to our salvation and redemption in Christ alone. Thank God for breaking the silence. Because that's what's happening. He's getting ready to make all things new. Christmas is coming. That's the point. And Isaiah, God says, for my ways are not, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens or as higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for the purpose for which I sent it, it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But do you believe those words from the mouth of your God? That's what he's there for Christmas. And I said this before. Allow him to work 
supernaturally in your life. It's a blessing. It's okay for you not to understand everything he's doing. Because you're finite, he's infinite. It's okay that you don't have it all figured out. But he has it figured out, and he has you. He is not silent in your existence. He is working in all of us, old and young. But do you believe that, beloved? Do you believe it? His purposes here are being accomplished through the testimony of John, and his word is succeeding. John is fulfilling his purpose in these verses. The test, his testimony of denials fulfills his purpose, and his testimonies of affirmation does the same too. In verses 29 to 34, John moves away from denials and he, to affirmations. And these are affirmations about Jesus Christ himself. Verse 29 says, the next day, John sees Jesus coming towards him. And this happens the day after his conversation with the priest and Levi. The day after, he just told them, there's one that stands among you that you don't know. And he's greater than you. John is now going to publicly affirm Jesus. He openly affirms Jesus' identity. That's what he does first. Look at verse 32 to 34. It says, where is it? And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He affirms that. Can you affirm it? Jesus is the Son of God. Without qualification. He is. Next, he affirms Jesus' superiority. In verses 30, 31, 30 and 31, he says, This is he of whom I said after me comes. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus is superior. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Can you affirm that? Can you testify to that? And finally, he affirms Jesus' mission. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the sacrificial lamb. That was his purpose. That's why that baby was born, to die. And John testifies to this. He bears witness to this, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is superior, that he is the Lamb of God. This is his testimony of the light. He affirms the true meaning of Christmas. Do you affirm it? It's not about the trees and the decorations and the presents. For Christians, it's more than that for us. See, Christmas isn't about us, but it's for us. That's not a misstatement. I want you all to understand that there, there isn't anything natural about Christmas, about the meaning of Christmas. It's not natural. 
Okay, it's not American. It's not Southern. It's not traditional. It's not progressive. It's not liberal. It's not conservative. It's countercultural. It's otherworldly. Christmas is a testimony of God's goodness. His goodness. And Christmas is supernatural. It's supernatural. There's nothing natural about it. A virgin having a baby. Come on! That's either true or stupid. There's nothing natural about it. Christmas is, is Yahweh's divine intervention into the land of the living. It's him working outside of our finite expectations. That's what he's doing. It's him saying, I always do things my way. And y'all can't box me in. To embrace Christmas, to embrace Christmas is to also embrace the truth that God is still able to work supernaturally in the land of the living. Can you embrace that? Can you embrace that? Because Christianity, our faith, is highly supernatural. Highly supernatural. It can't just be in books, okay? In conferences. It's more than just that. It's supernatural. And as, as first world Christians, we have a, t- a, a fearful tendency to, to embrace that. Because we like things a certain way. But to understand certain things. But when it comes to God, there's some things you ain't going to understand. And you got to accept that. And that's okay. The things that you can't understand is for your benefit. Things that you can't is for him and him alone. Do you believe God is able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or think. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Not just here, but next week. Not just now, but when you're in the valley low. Can you believe it then? Preaching. What, what makes preaching powerful? You think it's the preacher? You think it's how many degrees the preacher has? Hmm. You think it's because he, he, he can speak well in front of people? Does that, does that make preaching powerful? The Spirit of God is what makes preaching work. Apart from that, I'm just a motivational speaker. It, that's it. That's all I am. Apart from the Holy Spirit taking what I'm saying. So he has to move. He has to move. It is supernatural. Can we embrace that? Or have you put God in the box? Have you limited his movings only through your system, tribe, club, or party? Who is he to you? The testimony of John is about God still being able and, and, and what John is, and this whole interaction with him and these Levites, it, what, what he's telling them, he says, if you're rattled by me, wait to the person who comes after me. <laughs> like, if, if you're upset by what I'm doing, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till you get a load of the true light, the true Messiah, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. Wait till you get a load of Jesus. He's going to blow your mind. And he's going to step on toes. He's going to turn over tables. He's going to work all kind of miracles 
It's going to heal all kind of diseases. When the true light comes, he's going to bring real peace, real hope, real joy, real love. He's going to do all those things. And the person that you've been waiting on is found in him. He's the fulfillment. He's the Christ. He's the prophet. But do we believe it, saints? That when Jesus came into this world, it changed things forever. It changed things forever. Him coming into the world is proof that God loves you. The proof that he loves you. The proof he has a plan for you. It's proof that, that, that he will go to, to, he went to the greatest length to make sure he can redeem you by sacrificing his own son for you. That's proof that he cares. That's proof that he's not silent. Because, beloved, if he, if he can make a way to deal with our sin, he can make a way to deal with anything else that you're dealing with. And as young kids, if you can understand that now, man, you'll have so much joy in your walk with Jesus. You'll have so much joy. You won't, you won't, be a, you won't live and be a Pharisee if you can understand that truth. You would just enjoy. You would just enjoy it because you know that God got you. That he has you. It's not dependent upon your circumstances. That's Christmas. The gift that keeps on giving. The one gift that that won't tear up. The one gift that won't get old. The one gift you won't outgrow. Jesus is going to be with you forever. Yes, he will. And when it comes to Jesus... The darkness will never overcome it. Now, I know sometimes when you look at the world, when you look at life, when you look at the death, when you see injustice, you're like, it appears that the darkness is overcoming. But when you see the world, you got to also see Jesus. That don't just look at what is happening. You've got to still have hope. Because if you give into what's happening, if you give into what you see in the world, they'll take you to bad places, beloved. When he entered into this darkness, again, it changed it. And that means people's rejection of Jesus don't overturn Jesus. People's unbelief doesn't hinder him and opposition won't stop him. Come on. He defeated death. Who else you know defeated death? Who else you know took the best punch death could have and told death to sit down? Who else? Who else did that? No one. And if he could defeat death, he could defeat that thing you're currently dealing with. Come on. Who is Jesus? Who is your Jesus? Who is he? I know you're like, man, Pastor Alex, can you just stop? We get it. Do you really get it? These candles that we light every week, they serve as reminders to you. 
No, we're not just doing Advent just to say, oh, we're going to do some candles this year again. I don't, I don't do stuff just for the tradition. I do it for a purpose. It's to remind you that Jesus is your hope. He is your peace. He is your joy. He is your love. I want you to remember that, to believe that. And I never stop preaching that. I preach that to my last death, my last breath. I don't know how else to end the sermon, but I'm just going to pray. Let's pray. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the church is one foundation in Jesus Christ, her Lord. And that foundation doesn't have any cracks. That foundation is solid and firm and will always be solid and firm. And so I pray for everyone here that you would send them out of this place with a greater awareness of who Jesus is for them. That he is Emmanuel and he will always be Emmanuel. And it's in his name that I pray. Will you please stand as we close our service?